There was nothing quite like this in the ancient world, and it became the basis for our modern-day belief in an independent judiciary. That's what this is. Moses bypasses the tribal patriarchal structures. These judges are not the clan chiefs. They are independent of tribal loyalty and thus more likely to render just and fair decisions based on the law. Moses will continue to hear the most difficult cases. He will be the court of last appeal, what in many countries now is called the Supreme Court. But all lesser cases will be heard by independent justices in the lower courts. That is quite remarkable. And the fact that the idea came from a Midianite convert is part of the glory. The church has always been enriched by the fair and full inclusion of the nations. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The church has always been enriched by the fair and full inclusion of the nations. How true that is and how marvelously we see that truth played out in this story of the conversion and contribution of Jethro, the high priest of Midian. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 18. Many scholars believe that this story is actually presented to us at this point in the narrative for reasons other than strict chronology. Meaning, in terms of the actual narrative timeline, it seems as though this reunion between Moses and his family took place after the people had arrived at Mount Sinai proper and after the giving of the law. In the story, we will hear about people lining up to get an application of the law from Moses with respect to their particular situation, and that does seem to imply that the law had already been given. Now, in general, Jewish scholars are much more comfortable with the idea of dyschronology than Western scholars and Western Bible readers, for that matter. But we probably have to wrap our heads around the fact that Eastern storytelling techniques and literary conventions are just as legitimate as Western conventions and techniques. So different isn't necessarily worse, and different definitely shouldn't be equated with liberal or unfaithful. It does seem as though the story in chapter 18 took place after the events of chapter 20, but that doesn't mean that this is an error or a mistake, and it doesn't demonstrate a lack of courage or faith to explore whether or not there might be a good reason for Moses to have told this story here. And there does seem to be a good reason. In chapter 17, Moses narrated how the Lord gave the Israelites victory over the Amalekites. Well, of course, the Midianites are closely related to the Amalekites, and so it seems reasonable that Moses wanted to say that while God's judgment had fallen on the Amalekites, there was evidence of his mercy beginning to fall on the Midianites, particularly on the Kenite clan of the Midianites, as represented by the conversion of Jethro. In the Bible, judgment and salvation are often presented as two sides of the same coin. And that seems to be the reason why the strict chronology of the story has been disrupted at this point. So this is something of a sidebar, but it is a glorious sidebar. Thanks be to God. We'll begin reading the story at verse 1. 
Hear now the word of the Lord. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So we assume here that at some point Moses had sent his wife and children back to Midian and back into Jethro's care during his encounter with Pharaoh. We know that he initially brought them from Midian to Egypt because the Bible tells us that in Exodus 4.20. It says, So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. Closed quote. Now, many commentators assume that they only traveled with him as far as the border of Egypt, and then at that point, knowing the dangers that lay ahead, he very wisely sent them home and arranged with Jethro to have him bring them back to him once they had arrived at Sinai. All of that seems perfectly logical. And, of course, it is a reminder that there is a lot more going on than is told to us. Any writer understands that difficult selections have to be made when putting a story together, and an awful lot of good material gets left on the cutting room floor. The book of Exodus is not a biography of Moses. It is a story of how God works to save and sanctify his people. In fact, we probably wouldn't have even heard of this detail in the story if it had not been connected to the narrative of Jethro's salvation. Moses is very sparing when it comes to personal details. We pick up the story at verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, this is generally understood as an important conversion story. That's why it is here. Jethro was the high priest of Midian. Thus, conversion to the worship of Yahweh is a matter of some note. Douglas Stewart says here, commenting on Jethro's speech in verses 10 to 11, an advocate of whatever faith the Midianites espoused, he reversed course and became a Yahwist 
upon seeing the entire nation of Israel free from the bondage of Egypt and brought safe by Moses to Sinai, just as Moses had earlier told him Yahweh had predicted. The recent deliverance from the Amalekites must have had a powerful influence on Jethro's thinking as well, since he would have been fully familiar with their fighting abilities. The stories of the plagues and the Red Sea deliverance would also have surely impressed him. Closed quote. That is a very useful description of what is going on here. Jethro has seen and heard of the saving work of God, and he has now, through faith and confession, united himself with this redeeming God. That's a pretty decent description of how people get saved, how a person converts Old Testament and New. In the New Testament, obviously, we're responding to a different work of redemption, but the process is essentially the same. Jethro heard, Jethro believed, and Jethro was saved, thanks be to God. Hey, Pastor Paul, let me get in here because I've always been curious about this. How multi-ethnic was the church in the Old Testament? I've kind of always had the impression that the covenant community was exclusively Jewish in the Old Testament, but that it was then opened up by the Gentiles or to the Gentiles through Christ in the New Testament. But you're saying that scholars typically understand this story about Jethro as a conversion story. So were there non-Jewish believers in the Old Testament? Well, that's a great question. And you aren't wrong for seeing a significant shift in terms of how the multi-ethnic dynamic plays out in the covenant community as we move from Old Testament to New. There's no doubt that the door that was open a crack in the Old Testament is then thrown wide open, is blown off the hinges in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, 28 to 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So that's different. Membership in the covenant community now in the New Testament is on the basis of faith in Christ, and it has nothing to do with one's ethnic or biological connection to Abraham. And yet, there were several hints and anticipations of this movement even in the Old Testament. So to back it up a bit, God's purposes for humanity were originally universal in nature, meaning that the Bible starts with God dealing with human beings as a whole. The stories of Adam and Eve and and Noah and the ark, those are universal stories. Those aren't Jewish stories per se. But then after the flood and the Tower of Babel, where God scatters the people into separate tribes, tongues, and nations intentionally, God begins to narrow in on a particular family through whom he intends to bless the whole earth. And that's Abraham, right? Yes, exactly. And listen to the promise that God originally makes to Abraham. In Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3, God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God zooms in in order to zoom out. He does something through one family that was always supposed to be for all the families of the earth. So salvation is from the Jews, but it is for all people everywhere. Right. And and so for most of the Old Testament, God is teaching the world through the people of Israel. And that's not an easy job. 
You get the idea in Amos, for example, that God was being way harder on Israel than he was being on everybody else. He was holding Israel to a much higher standard because they were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were the ones through whom God was working to reconcile all things to himself, whether in heaven or on the earth, to borrow a phrase from Colossians 1.20. So to come back to my original question, do we have to wait for the New Testament to see that blessing land on the nations, or do we catch a glimpse of that in the Old Testament in stories like this one in Exodus 18? Yes. As I said, the floodgates are thrown wide open in the New Testament, but, but there's always a trickle and an anticipation in the Old Testament. We have stories like this one where a Midianite priest converts. We, we have the story of Rahab the prostitute. And of course, even before this, we had the story of Melchizedek in the time of Abraham. He appears to have known the Lord and to have worshiped and served him as well. So yes, there is a constant narrow flow of Gentiles into the family of faith in the Old Testament that becomes an absolute flood in the New Testament era. All right, thanks for that. And thank God for that mm -hmm. flood. As you say in the program audio, the church has always been enriched by the fair and full inclusion of the nations. Yeah, amen to that. All right, let's jump back into the story now in verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times." Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So the situation here seems to be that people were coming to Moses to have their disputes adjudicated. Moses was the lawgiver, and Moses was the prophet. And so everybody wanted to speak to Moses. But because Moses was just one man, the process was predictably bogging down. And that wasn't good. That wasn't just. As William Gladstone famously said, justice delayed is justice denied. So this was not a good situation for the people, and it was not a good situation for Moses. He was an 80-year-old man, and he was going to burn himself out as Jethro himself knew very well. Jethro had far more experience as the leader of a large group of people than did Moses. So he gave some advice, and Moses was humble enough to take it. And what resulted was really one of the most significant developments in human history, literally. Nahum Sarnas says here, 
it seems that Moses bypasses the existing power structure. The elders, who usually exercise judicial functions in a tribal patriarchal society, are, surprisingly, not mentioned. In fact, the tribal divisions are wholly ignored in the appointments to this new judiciary. The restructuring creates a centralized, supra-tribal system, closed quote. There was nothing quite like this in the ancient world, and it became the basis for our modern-day belief in an independent judiciary. That's what this is. Moses bypasses the tribal patriarchal structures. These judges are not the clan chiefs. They are independent of tribal loyalty and thus more likely to render just and fair decisions based on the law. Moses will continue to hear the most difficult cases. He will be the court of last appeal, what in many countries now is called the Supreme Court. But all lesser cases will be heard by independent justices in the lower courts. That is quite remarkable. And the fact that the idea came from a Midianite convert is part of the glory. The church has always been enriched by the fair and full inclusion of the nations. Thanks be to God. We pick up the story at verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. J. Alec Machir provides a wonderful and succinct summary for this chapter. He says, two principles emerge from this. The salvation of Israel is the salvation of the world, and the experiences of the redeemed are a testimony to the world. That is true. That is <laughs> glorious, and that is encouraging. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I feel like this whole chapter is foundational for like three or four different conversations we could have right now in the church. There are conversations to be had about justice and the importance of an independent judiciary. There are conversations about race and how the church is edified and improved by the inclusion of other cultures and viewpoints. And there is a conversation about plurality and delegation when it comes to leadership in the covenant community. And that's the one I want to park on for a few minutes here. Is it just me or does this strike you as something of a blueprint for how to do leadership and how to avoid burnout in a leadership position within the church? Yeah, it absolutely strikes me that way. And I think it's supposed to strike us that way. As you mentioned, this story is in the Bible for a couple of different reasons, but this is definitely one of them. As I said in the program audio, quoting from Nahum Sarna, this is Moses bypassing the tribal structure. We're not going to have inherited ancestral leadership in the covenant community. We're going to have a plurality of leaders who are accountable to an authoritative constitution. And that is going to serve the interests of fairness. And that's going to help avoid burnout, both in terms of the leaders burning out and in terms of the people being exhausted by the leader. 
Yeah, I'm picking up that vibe as well. This feels like it's partly for the benefit of Moses, but also partly for the benefit of the people. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's totally right. I think you are just asking for trouble when you have a dominant leader who's making all the decisions within an organization, any organization, let alone a church. I think that that's going to burn that leader out, but I also think that is going to result in unjust decisions and eventually to bitterness and distrust between the leader and the people. Okay, so how would this work out in a church today? Obviously, there are some differences in terms of a modern-day church and an Old Testament nation that was also a church, but the principles are still in play. So how would you live out the wisdom of this passage in a church today? Well, first of all, I'd say that this passage should serve as a warning against two things. Uh, Number one, it's a warning against organizing your church around a single dominant leader. Even if he's a great guy, Moses was a great guy. According to the book of Numbers, he was the meekest man on planet Earth. So he was a good guy. And and he was the most qualified guy in that group by a country mile. He was educated in Pharaoh's household. So in our terminology today, we would say he had a PhD from Oxford. He was maximally educated and maximally qualified. And he was a super guy. And yet, we are being warned here not to lean too heavily on any human leader. It will be bad for him and bad for us. So that's the first thing. This text is encouraging us toward plurality as a principle of leadership. And then secondly, I think there's a warning here against tribalism or nepotism. It is hard to get justice when family and personal relationships are in play. So Moses bypasses the tribal structure here. And I think we need to see that I think churches should have some things in place to make sure that a couple of family members can't gain control of an entire community. There should be supra-tribal leadership structures in every organization, and particularly, I would say, in the church. And then one positive thing. We mentioned two obvious warnings. I think the, the big positive principle here is the importance of personal character when making leadership decisions. Verse 21 says, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. I think when the church takes this seriously, we do very well. And when we overemphasize education, talent, and personal charisma, we get ourselves into serious trouble And I think we've seen plenty of evidence for that hypothesis over these last several years. Yeah, far too much evidence for that, in my opinion. Yeah, and of course, that is exactly what we would expect as Bible readers. I mean, this is no different than what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. We need leaders in the church who are people of character. Paul says to Timothy, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, close quote. So he says, look for people who are mature, faithful, self-controlled, respectable, welcoming, yes, able to teach, not drunk, not violent, gentle, who know how to get along and who are not in it for the money. So there is a talent mentioned there, yeah, able to teach, But that's just one piece of the pie. And the majority of the slices in that pie have to do with personal character and human kindness. 
which is exactly the opposite of how we tend to put our leadership pies together today. We, we tend to look for nine parts talent for every one part character. And so that's one way I think we could be helped and corrected by this text. Mm, well, amen to that. Well, as always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune into Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the book of Exodus. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 